The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 37, The Battle of Hattin. The Horns of Hattin are a geographical feature with twin peaks left on the landscape by an extinct volcano. They can be found east of the Sea of Galilee, in the Israeli region of Lower Galilee. The lands around the Sea of Galilee are in the Levantine side of the Fertile Crescent, which is a large crescent of land in the Middle East which was notable for its ability to entertain human settlement by its favourable conditions. Some of the earliest known human settlements emerged in this area and it was at the centre of an important early trade link between Egypt and the north. Some of the earliest known societies of these lands were the Amorites, who lived in this region around 4,000 years ago and were among the earliest known Semitic language speakers. Their location in the Levant put them in the centre of a trade network between Anatolia and Egypt and the Mediterranean Sea. Large amounts of tin would have passed through this area as it was vital for bronze production. The growth of the Mitannis in northern Mesopotamia in the late 16th century BCE prompted a response from the Egyptians who occupied the lands around Lower Galilee in order to counterbalance the situation in the Levant. We can identify this area as the region of Canaan mentioned in the Bible. During the second millennium BCE, These Canaanite lands were competed for by larger powers such as the Egyptians and the Hittites. The Hittites rose to power supplanting the Mitanni to the north. Even though the Hittites were considerably powerful, the Egyptians prevented them from occupying the lands of Lower Galilee. The Late Bronze Age collapse occurred at the close of the 13th century BCE and it affected the Hittites and the Egyptians to the point where they could no longer afford to worry about Canaan. After this point, there is very little in the way of contemporary literal references for the politics of Canaan. The one main source is the Old Testament of the Bible, which at best is a historical account interspersed with fantastic events. It tells the story of the formation of the 12 tribes of Israel in and around these lands. The lands of Galilee were occupied by the tribe of Dan. Galilee may have benefited from close proximity to the enterprising Phoenicians who had made the most of the opportunities to take advantage 
of the maritime trade routes vacated by previous societies. But this also brought the interest of the new and powerful imperial powerhouse of the Near East to the area, namely the Neo-Assyrians. The Neo-Assyrians conquered all of the lands of the Levant before other societies were able to emerge, grow and ultimately match the strength of the Neo-Assyrians, one of which was the Babylonians, who would take control of the Levant. Babylonian control of the area was relatively short-lived as a Persian powerhouse under King Cyrus the Great conquered the Babylonians, bringing the region under Achaemenid Persian rule. Persian rule over the Levant subsided when Alexander the Great led a military expedition through the Near East and in order to secure the wealth of Egypt for his campaigns, he would need to march through and secure the lands of the Levant, which meant that he likely travelled through Galilee. Alexander's empire was split between his successors, the Diadochi. The Levantine lands were continually battled over by the successor states, until the 2nd century when the Hasmonean dynasty gradually achieved independence for a Judean kingdom based in Jerusalem that would expand into the lands of Galilee. Along came the Romans who turned Hasmonean Judea into its client state. Despite the very real challenge of the new rulers of the Persian Empire, the Parthians. Jewish tension and subsequent revolts also affected this area. Galilee was among the most easternmost lands of the Roman Empire and as such would naturally be included in the Eastern Roman imperial lands that would come to be recognised as the Byzantine Empire. The successors in Persian lands to the Parthians were the Sasanians and at the start of the 7th century they would push the Byzantines out of the Levant. The Byzantines would regain Jerusalem, but in their efforts to challenge each other, both the Byzantines and the Sasanians were weakened, which enabled the Rashidun Caliphate from Arabia to push both the Byzantines and Sasanians northwards and out of the Middle East, including the Levant. The Levant would remain under Muslim rule under the successive caliphates until a Mamluk dynasty called the Tulunids expanded from the heartlands in Egypt, taking control of the Levant. The Tulunids did not have the financial capacity to continue their rule, so Galilee and the surrounding lands reverted back to the caliphate. Similarly, another Egyptian Mamluk society called the Ikshidids expanded from Egypt into the Levant, but this time they were conquered from the west by Ismaili Shia Fatimids, who had expanded from central North Africa. The Fatimids moved their capital city to Egypt, but always struggled to maintain uninterrupted control of the Levant, which was surrounded by rival Muslim dynasties. Towards the end of the 11th century, and the Shia Fatimids would encounter a new Sunni Muslim power in the Seljuk Turks. Not only did the Seljuk Turks push the Fatimids southwards and out of Galilee, but they would also conquer the Anatolian lands of the Byzantines 
knocking on the door of the Byzantine capital of Constantinople and prompting the Byzantines to appeal to the Christians of Western Europe for help. Utremea. The Byzantine call westwards for mercenaries was answered with enthusiasm and over the course of the next four years, waves of crusader armies came to the Middle East, not just to push the Seljuk Turks out of Anatolia, but also to push onto the lands of the Levant en route to the holy city of Jerusalem, keen to remove it from Muslim rule and replace it with Christian rule. The crusader armies marched through Anatolia and took the city of Antioch after a siege. Those who wanted to continue onwards to Jerusalem would push through Galilee and on to Jerusalem. By this time, the Fatimids had won Jerusalem back from the Seljuk Turks, but they were unable to stop the Crusaders from taking the city. The existence of four Crusader states was established, respectively centred at Edessa, Antioch, Jerusalem and Tripoli. They would be collectively referred to as Outremer. Outremer was always going to be tricky to govern and defend. The Byzantines, who were their closest Christian allies, were quite indifferent about standing alongside the Crusader states, mainly due to the fact that those leaders of the Crusaders had not been too interested in returning former Byzantine lands to the Byzantines which was the whole point of the Byzantines asking for the help in the first place. So Outremer was quite remote from its main source of support, which was Western Europe. The Principality of Galilee was the scene of the battle that is the subject of today's episode, and it was one of the Kingdom of Jerusalem's main seigneuries. We learned that the crusader named Godfrey of Bouillon earned the right to be named the King of Jerusalem. His brother, Baldwin of Boulogne, was the Count of Edessa. And when Godfrey died in an untimely manner the year after his famous 1099 conquest of Jerusalem, his brother, Baldwin, would become the new King of Jerusalem. Baldwin's cousin, also called Baldwin, became the new Count of Edessa in 1100 and he would go on to replace his cousin as the King of Jerusalem in 1118, ruling as King Baldwin II of Jerusalem. Being the King of Jerusalem would undoubtedly be a stressful job, with the constant requirement to be militarily ready for the aggressions of their neighbours. Part of the attraction for the Christian conquest of the Holy Land was the ability for pilgrims to reach Jerusalem in relative safely, which had not always been the case with the most recent Muslim regimes in the city. Outremer was not a complete safe haven in the aftermath of the First Crusade, but at the very least the pilgrims could be escorted by some able and pious knights who in their own right would be recognised as a Roman Catholic military order by the Pope and known as the Knights Templar. The popularity of the Knights Templar 
led to them being given donations that would enhance their profile and lead to them being able to form a considerable army. This army would be ready to dutifully defend Outremer lands where necessary. The states of Outremer were also wary of each other. Although they may stick together against Muslim aggressors, there was still tension between them with each other. The new Zenkid dynasty, based in the city of Mosul, expanded westwards towards Outremer at a time when Edessa and Antioch were in the midst of a dispute with each other. The Zenkids took advantage of the disarray and conquered the city of Edessa, causing alarm throughout Christendom and prompting the Pope to make a new call to arms which resulted in the Second Crusade. The Second Crusade was a bit of a failure. Three European kings started out leading the charge, and by the end only one remained, and after failing to mount an assault on Edessa, the Crusader army was coerced by Outremer to besiege Damascus, an operation that resulted in failure. The Zengids had become too powerful, and the Crusaders of the Second Crusade in the Holy Land had failed to alter the status quo. In the aftermath, the Zengids would pressurise the lands of the Crusader states. Ayyubids. The First Crusade resulted in the Fatimids of the Caliphate based in Egypt being pushed out of Jerusalem, after which they attempted to hound the Kingdom of Jerusalem with limited success. Throughout the 12th century, the Fatimid Caliphate struggled to overcome difficulties with competing ethnic groups and between the vizier and the caliph. These difficulties would weaken the Fatimid Caliphate and even tempt Outremer to consider conquest of the Egyptian lands. The Zengids moved quickly to send senior statesmen into Fatimid Egypt to attempt to arbitrate the tensions, and this ultimately led to one of these statesmen, a man called Saladin, to rise to power and take control of Fatimid Egypt eventually removing the Fatimid dynasty and installing himself as the new Sultan of Egypt, starting what would become known as the Ayyubid dynasty of rulers. The Ayyubid progenitor was Saladin's father, a Kurdish soldier called Najm al-Din Ayyub. The ascendancy of the Ayyubids in Egypt would bring Egypt back into the Sunni Islamic world, whereas before, under the Fatimids, Egypt was an Ismaili Shia Islamic nation. And ideologically detached from the Abbasid Caliphate, still regarded by many as the rightful successor state to the original Rashidun Caliphate. Fatimid sympathisers attempted to rise up against the Ayyubid regime, but this was not successful. The important thing to note about Egypt is that since Roman occupation a thousand years earlier, the Coptic Christian Church, a branch of the Christian Church specific to Egypt, had continued to exist right the way through to the Islamisation of the nation of Egypt. 
In general, the Muslim rulers of Egypt over the centuries had been largely tolerant of the Coptic Christian church, although there were some exceptions. The Ayyubids, despite their reputation as enemies of the Crusader states, were also tolerant of the Coptic Christian church. The Ayyubids under Saladin took control of Egypt in 1171 and very quickly looked to expand their influence along the Arabian banks of the Red Sea through the traditional lands of the origins of Islam, the Hejaz, right the way down to the far south of the Arabian Peninsula and the southern entrance to the Red Sea at Bab el-Mandeb. They would also surround Utremer by taking control of the city of Damascus and pushing the Zengids back to their centres of Aleppo and Mosul, and then subjugating them during the 1180s. Guy of Lusignan During the 1170s, the king of Jerusalem was Baldwin IV, who took the throne of Jerusalem as a teenager after the untimely death of his father, King Amalric. Despite being young, Baldwin was ill, suffering from the gradual onset of leprosy and forcing him to make plans for an abdication. He would need to secure his succession before he could do so, but he needed to act quickly, as his fellow Outremer kings had plans to influence the succession of Jerusalem to their own favour. After some initial drama, Baldwin would arrange for his sister, Sibylla, to marry a French knight called Guy of Lusignan. Baldwin IV continued to rule bravely despite his disease until his death in 1185. Guy of Lusignan was the man that Baldwin intended to be king ruling as the consort of the bloodline queen, Sibylla. Guy would struggle to claim the role of king initially due to his unpopularity with the barons, but eventually it would be somewhat unavoidable due to the course of events and Sibylla and Guy would become the queen and king of Jerusalem. The pressures from the nobles even forced Sibylla to divorce Guy before she decided to remarry him. Saladin Saladin grew up in Zengid, Syrian lands with an appetite for religious studies. Saladin was seemingly very well educated. Very little is known of Saladin's childhood, but he would have been in his mid-twenties when he accompanied his uncle Sherko to Egypt. Sherko and Saladin were sent there by the Zengid emir in order to arbitrate an issue with the appointment of the Egyptian vizier, which was being contested by two rivals. It is likely that the Zengids wanted to prevent the Crusader states exploiting the vulnerability of Fatimid Egypt and conquering the country. Sherko was able to settle the situation down in Egypt, but when the Fatimids asked him to leave, he refused. It was probably just as well because the Kingdom of Jerusalem under King Amalric continued to invade Fatimid Egypt. It would be Sherko and Saladin who would lead the defence of Egypt successfully. 
their popularity with the Egyptian people increased as a consequence. The Egyptian vizier was a man called Shawa, and it was thanks to Sherko and Saladin that he was able to maintain his title. It may have been that Shawa was concerned about the Zengid influence in Egypt and actually turned to Amalric for help. It is reported that Saladin himself assassinated Shawa and Sherko took the title of vizier. Sherko's days came to an end in the very same year, 1169, and it would be Saladin himself who would take over as the Egyptian vizier with the blessing of the Fatimid Caliph. This did not prevent a Fatimid military uprising against Saladin, but Saladin proved his worth again by putting the rebellion down. He would then turn his attention to destroying any Crusader state presence and fortifications in Gaza, where the Crusader states had been launching attacks on Egypt from. Saladin was a Sunni Muslim in the land of the Fatimids, Shia Muslims. With encouragement from the Sunni Zengids, Saladin was encouraged to take control of Egypt to bring it back into the Sunni sphere of influence centred around the figurehead Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad. The young Fatimid Caliph Al-Adid died from illness at the young age of 20, but even he would have known that the Fatimids were being edged out of power after 200 years of Egyptian rule. Although no evidence exists, Al-Adid's death is highly suspicious. Saladin took control of Egypt, establishing an Ayyubid Sultanate, and Ismaili Shias were persecuted as Fatimids attempted to rebel against Ayyubid rule unsuccessfully. As it was the Zengids who sent and encouraged Saladin in Egypt, the Zengids considered the Ayyubids as their subjects. But Saladin considered his power as otherwise and the tensions between the Zengids and the Ayyubids increased. The wealth of Egypt enabled Saladin to take advantage of the death of the Zengid emir Nur al-Din by using diplomacy and military action to attempt to unite the Muslim states together under one rule and one cause, something that would prove to be highly ominous for the Crusader states. As a pious Muslim, Saladin had clear ambitions to declare jihad on the Crusader states that had shown aggression towards Muslim nations during his lifetime and to restore the glory of a united Islamic state which resembled the glorious Umayyad Caliphate that prospered so well 500 years earlier. Prelude to the Battle By the time Guy of Lusignan had become the King of Jerusalem, Saladin had brought the Emirates of Damascus and Aleppo into his realm. Guy's position as the king was not popular with everybody in and around the politics of Jerusalem, so this created division and weakness within the kingdom that Saladin would be all too aware of. Guy's main political opponent was Raymond III, the Count of the Crusader State of Tripoli, 
and there were strong rumours that he had appealed to Saladin himself to support Raymond's desire to take the crown of Jerusalem for himself. The Kingdom of Jerusalem was centred on the city of Jerusalem on the Levantine coastal lands, but the kingdom extended eastwards across the Jordan River into an area called the Lordship of Ultra-Jordan, which acted as a geographical barrier between Syria and Egypt, a very important goods route for Saladin. A truce existed between Saladin and Jerusalem that all Ayyubid caravans be allowed safe passage through Ultra-Jordan. The Lord of Ultra-Jordan was a man called Reynald of Châtillon. Reynald's experience in Ultramer dated all the way back to the Second Crusade, so he was an older gentleman with plenty of experience of the Middle East. Reynald was a supporter of Guy in Jerusalem, but did not respect the truce and attacked an Ayyubid caravan travelling through Ultra-Jordan, and this sparked Saladin's fury. Saladin decided that now was the time to act, and Guy, the king of Jerusalem, decided that he needed to appeal to Count Raymond III of Tripoli to show some loyalty to the Crusader states in the face of Saladin's invasion. Raymond remained reluctant, seeing Saladin as a means by which he could gain control of Jerusalem for himself. A delegation of members of the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitallers, who were a similar Christian military order to the Knights Templar, encountered an Ayyubid raiding party in Galilee and were comprehensively slaughtered at the Battle of Cresson in May 1187, causing a great wave of shock and confusion throughout Ultramer. Count Raymond of Tripoli realised that Saladin had no intention of sparing Jerusalem, and begrudgingly pledged his allegiance to the unpopular Guy and the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Differences in Outremer now had to be put on the back burner, as the Ayyubid invasion of Outremer was now the priority. Saladin decided to try to deny passage to the Sea of Galilee by attacking the fortress at the city of Tiberias, a city on the banks of the western side of the sea and draw the Crusader army into the lands between Tiberias and Nazareth. Guy could not really win either way. Some were encouraging him to attack Saladin, while others were advising him to stay back. Guy decided that he needed to advance against Saladin, and Saladin may have used some cunning to lure Guy's army out into the open. Instead of attempting to besiege Guy's army while it was garrisoned, he decided to continue the destruction of the city of Tiberias and force Guy to advance into the open battlefield. Saladin's army was huge. It may have been between 30 and 40,000 men. The Crusader State Army could only muster around half of that number. Saladin would command the centre units of the army, while his nephew Al-Muzaffar Taqi al-Din Umar commanded the left wing and the trusted Kurdish general Muzaffar al-Din Gukburi commanded the right wing. 
around half of the Ayyubid army were represented by veteran cavalry. The Crusader State Army was predominantly infantry and cavalry, not armoured, with over a thousand knights. Guy's unlikely ally, Raymond, Count of Tripoli, was up front commanding the vanguard. Guy himself commanded the centre, and the rearguard commanded by Balian of the Jerusalemite noble family of Iblan. Knights Templar and Knights Hospitaller were also involved as well as the independent-minded Reynald of Châtillon, Lord of Outre-Jordan. Basically, the Outremer army was as much as Guy could muster and may have been the largest Outremer army gathered to date, but it was still only around half the size of the Ayyubids. The Battle of Hattin When Guy made the bold decision to advance his army towards the city of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee, he may have been disappointed to discover that Saladin had anticipated this move. He blocked the Crusader army's route to the sea and had blocked off all the wells, leaving Guy's army and horses with no access to water in the arid summer heat. Despite his superior numbers, Saladin had set in place an elaborate plan, like a Venus flytrap attracting its prey into its trap. Guy had led his army into Saladin's waterless nightmare. Saladin's army would refrain from attacking the Outremer army. They didn't need to do so. They just needed to stay close and watch as they camped overnight, frustrated and thirsty, and then as they set off in search of water on the following morning. Saladin's men would set fire to the scrub, causing smoky conditions which would further add to the dehydration of the Outremer troops. Their morale by this time was very low, and some would begin to surrender to their Muslim enemies. Gukaburi, the Kurdish commander of the Ayyubid army's right flank, commanded his stocked-up archers to unleash a barrage of arrows at the Crusader State Army. Many men and horses were struck by the arrows. It was a desperate time for the Crusader State Army, becoming sitting ducks for the Ayyubids. They started realising that if they did nothing but try to defend their position, they would just simply be picked off or starved out by the Ayyubids. Guy would believe that if his army could reach the village of Hattin, that they could stand a chance of survival. Others among his ranks felt differently, believing that they had to attack their enemy. Infantry started breaking ranks and leaving cavalry exposed. Raymond of Tripoli and Balian of Ibelan, the commanders of the Crusader State Vanguard and Rearguard respectively, were involved in a desperate charge against Taki al-Din's troops, but the Ayyubids allowed the charge to advance through the middle of their ranks, leaving Raymond and Balian separated from the main army. Now Raymond and Balian had a choice about whether to continue fighting or to keep going and escape to safety. They chose the latter option.
This seems like common sense given the circumstances. But we also know that Raymond cared little for his traditional enemy, Guy, and was also against the plan to hastily rescue the city of Tiberias in the first place, despite his own wife being besieged by the Aeobids at Tiberius' citadel. Guy took stock of the situation after raising his tent and determined that the only way to stand any chance of survival was to attack the Aeobids at their very heart, meaning that Saladin himself was the target. As you can imagine, the odds were stacked impossibly against Guy, with his military numbers already hugely inferior to those of Saladin. He had lost his two more important commanders and the rest of his army were tired, dehydrated and demoralised. They bravely attempted to attack Saladin directly, but it was all in vain. Saladin waited to see the sight of Guy's tent collapsing on the battlefield to be sure that the battle had been won. Aftermath Guy was taken prisoner by Saladin, alongside a large number of military including knights and mercenaries. One such prisoner was Reynald of Châtillon, the lord of Outre-Jordan, the man who chose to attack the caravan of the Ayyubids travelling between Syria and Egypt that angered Saladin into action in the first place. It is written that Saladin offered Reynald the opportunity to convert to Islam. However, Reynald refused and Saladin personally beheaded him. Saladin gave Guy the assurance that he would not suffer the same fate and that his life would be spared as a fellow king and he was true to his word. High-ranking barons and knights also had their lives spared with some of them having a ransom demanded for their liberty. Those among the ranks of the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller were not so lucky. They would face execution via a ceremonial beheading so that these two institutions may never pose the same threat to the Ayyubids again. Crusader mercenaries were often in the form of local Turks and Arabs who chose to fight on the side of the Crusader states and therefore considered to be among the worst traitors to Islam. Having converted to Christianity, Saladin would spare no forgiveness as per the Islamic doctrine for such a crime against Islam and these people, referred to collectively as Turkopoles, were executed. Those prisoners who were not executed were sold into slavery. The destruction of the majority of the Outremer forces left the Kingdom of Jerusalem vulnerable. The Ayyubids picked off the cities of the kingdom one by one in their bid to gain control of it. Inevitably, Jerusalem would be the target and the escaping crusader at the Battle of Hattin, Balian of Ibelan, was entrusted with the task of defending the city of Jerusalem. It was a futile responsibility though. The siege lasted less than two weeks and Balian's main contribution was to negotiate the peaceful surrender of the city and spare as many Christian lives as possible. It was around this time that the other major escapee of the battle, Raymond, Count of Tripoli, fell seriously ill, possibly with pleurisy, and died while in Tripoli. 
The fall of Jerusalem meant that the Kingdom of Jerusalem had to move its capital to the coast to rule over what little was left of the Kingdom. Guy of Lusignan continued to rule the Kingdom after his release from Ayyubid captivity. The fall of the city sent shockwaves across the continent of Europe and prompted what would become the Third Crusade. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Battle of Hattin and more fundamentally really an insight into Saladin who was uh, immortalised really as the uh, the arch nemesis of Richard the Lionheart and we'll be exploring that story next week when Richard the Lionheart reacts to the fact that Jerusalem has fallen to the Ayyubids and uh, and comes over to Outremer on the third crusade so we're going to really look at that and uh, and that was that this is a fantastic story coming next week make sure you don't miss it the battle of Ersuf. um we're going to be looking at the the showdown between Richard the Lionheart and Saladin and um when the two great warriors go head to head uh, not to be missed. So make sure you listen to that one next week. Um, but this one we found out mainly about Saladin and this insatiable desire to uh, spread the Islamic faith and uh, show a united front against this Christian crusader movement. The Ancient World Cup. This week is the result of the first match of round three. So we're now in the, the very later stages of the competition. Um, with round three now, we've got eight round three matches um, and each match will decide one of our quarter finalists. Uh, so we're down to the last 16 and the first match of the last 16 uh, pitted the Macedonians up against the Scythians. So the Macedonians, uh, with their iconic leader Alexander the Great, uh, against the Scythians, those uh, those steppe culture societies uh, that uh, were the, the the precursors to the Huns and and the Mongols, all of those societies that dominated from the steppe. The Scythians uh, were there before all of them. So uh, that was the round three match. The results are as follows. Thank you very much for 68 votes this week. So a good healthy vote count. 68 votes. Uh, The winners with 63% of the vote were the Macedonians. So we finally say goodbye to the Scythians. And we see the Macedonians become our first quarter finalists so we're really getting down to the big boys now the people who you lot uh, really want to see uh, progress to the later stages so the Macedonians are our first quarter finalists next week we've got another big match it will be the Britons against the Franks Uh, now the Britons um, specifically we're referring to those Celtic Britons who uh, the Romans um came over and and essentially they conquered in the main part. Uh, The others were pushed into the fringes of the British Isles. 
but it's the Celtic Britons, the Celtic cultured Britons, uh, the ones who um, were there when the Anglo-Saxons invaded. So um, we could essentially call those the Romano Britons, but the Britons, the indigenous British people, um, uh, that include the likes of um, uh, Queen Boudicca, for example. And um, they will go up against the Franks. And the Franks we really know from ancient times as uh, those who were united by King Clovis and um, eventually led to the, uh, the great military generals of Charles Martel and Charlemagne. So the Franks... Um, who uh, whose legacy is, is huge and the Britons whose legacy is also huge. They're going up against each other next week. Keep an eye on the Tapper Talk discussion forum, uh, the Facebook page for the History of the World podcast, the Facebook unofficial fan group, Twitter and Instagram. And uh, you can vote on any of those forums. Listener messages and reviews. Now, if you like the podcast and you want to support the podcast, you might be pleased to know that you can. Just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and click on the Patreon link. When you sign up to be a Patreon, over time you will accrue the right to win awards and gifts and they'll either be posted to you or... They will be uh, announced to you as such as special episodes on the subject of your choice. Uh, with, with Patreon accounts, normally you have to commit to a monthly donation of a, of a particular size to qualify for gifts. You don't get that with the History of the World podcast. If you want to qualify for the $50 prize, we allow you to do that over any length of time. So you could potentially give $5 a month and uh, once you've uh, once you've done that for ten months, you will get the fifty dollar reward. You don't have to do fifty dollars a month, which is uh, which is more than enough, isn't it? If for for any kind of uh, commitment, so sign up for as little or as much as you like, and you will still be entitled to eventually get the same rewards as everybody else. Um, we welcome in to the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week, Kevin Lewis, who has signed up and is now a patron of the podcast. And as such, he uh, has earned the distinction of being a History of the World podcast Illuminati member. So thank you, Kevin. Um, we did get a review this week uh, from Little Human People, who's put, awesome, I'm so happy to have found this podcast. I wanted it all, and this is it. Brilliant and succinct, if I may say so myself. Uh, but thank you, Ever so much for everyone who uh, who listened this week, and um, don't forget to write in. Give me uh, give me your messages. Write in to me at history of the world podcast at mail dot com, and I will read out the the best messages, of course, uh, during the podcast. Uh, if you want more, and you are a patron, or indeed um, you you haven't signed up to Patreon, you can go and do so. And you can listen to a sort of a 10 or 15 minute um, review of this week's podcast episode and listen to uh, some of the insight as to how I wrote it and which sources 
I used in terms of uh, gathering materials and triangulating information to give you the best podcast that I could write um, at short notice. So uh, if you want to listen to that, just go to the Patreon page and uh, and you will be able to find the audio file there. You'll be able to listen to it directly on the Patreon site. So uh, if you haven't had enough yet, go along there now. Uh, next week is the Battle of Ersuf. Uh, which uh, introduces Richard the Lionheart into this political situation in Outremer that we uh, that we that we spoke of this week. Uh, so just four years after uh, a big showdown between Richard and Saladin, uh, it's uh, one of the most famous uh, head-to-heads in in history. So if you're going to listen to any battle episode, I, I sincerely. Uh, recommend that one. It's a, it's a really, it's a truly fascinating story. Uh, it's a, it's a real battle of attrition, uh, with, with a, a, a quite a, a, quite a thrilling climax. So, so listening next week, battle of Ersuf. But until then, until this time next week, don't forget, be good. The history of the world podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the History of the World Podcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.